The scripture today is coming from Joshua 24, 14, and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. There was this uh, old man from the hills of Tennessee. Uh, he and his wife had to go into the big city, at least as they saw it, uh, because they had to meet with a lawyer in order to ultimately address some things that were happening with their property. And uh, their grandson asked if he could come with them. And so this grandma and the grandpa, they took their grandson into the city. And this took place a, a while ago. And the grandpa, the grandson knew, hated going into the city because he hated change. He hated anything new. And he would complain the whole way there about how the city had changed. And sure enough, when they got there, the city that they were going to, it had one of the first new, what they were calling a skyscraper at the time, a multi-story uh, building. And he just, you know, lamented that fact. And that was the building they had to go into for their meeting with this lawyer about their property. They get into the building. Actually, before they even go in, there's some newfangled contraption or invention to go in. It's called an automatic revolving door, you know. And so, you know, after fiddling through that and complaining about the door, why can't they just open doors and walk right in like we used to? They get inside and they see, and he sees for the very first time with his wife, this, this thing called an elevator. You know, in my day, we used to take the stairs up and down. Now they got this thing, this, this elevator. And so he's standing there in the lobby with his grandson. And his wife goes over to the reception desk. And she is talking to the receptionist about where the lawyer's office is. And as he's standing there with his, with his grandson, he, he watches as this older, um, uh, elderly-looking woman uh, walks past him and uh, goes to the elevator and pushes the button. The, the door's open, and, he, and she walks in, and he's like, look at that. You know, capitulating to the new things. He's like, he's like I, you never see me using anything like that, goes in, closes the door. The wife is still talking over there. The grandma's still talking. Uh, a few moments later, the grandpa looks around with his grandson, and he sees the doors open up, and out walks this very lovely, young, attractive young woman. <laughs> and he immediately grabs the grandson, and he says, go get your grandma. And, and so, <laughs> you know, he thought, hey, what does this elevator do? Uh, Some people like change, some people don't like change. Some people come to really like change, or so they, so they think. Um, just uh, a, a humorous, humorous story. I remember it the first time I, I heard it. Well, whether you like change or not, uh, moments like these, uh, moments of change, they, they offer, I believe, for us an opportunity and to consider where we've been and where God has us and where ultimately we're going. So today, what I want to do is I want to take some time with you to look at the event in the life of the nation of Israel when they're about to go through some very significant change. And my hope is that as we look at how God's people, <clears throat> as they were about to enter into change, how God engaged them and what he did for them, that it would be a, a, a template for us, a means by which we would think about and evaluate the, our own change that's about to happen. And the story we're going to look at, or I should say the event, is in Joshua chapter 24. So if you were with us while we were studying the book of Judges, it should be easy to find Joshua. Just go back one book. But we're going to look in Joshua chapter 24, and we're going to consider, Lord, what do you have to say to us about how we think about change and what you would desire for us? So, are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? Because it is going to be a fire hose today. Let's, let's go. 
Joshua 24, here's the context. Joshua is this man of God. He is part of the generation of God's people who were rescued and redeemed out of Egypt. He was one of the two spies that when the people of God were going to take over the promised land, he went in first and he said, God's going to give us this land. When Moses, who had been the Israelites' leader when they went out of Egypt, died, God called upon Joshua to lead the people during the time when they were passing from the desert and into the promised land to take possession of it and conquer it. So Joshua is the last leader of the Egyptian generation who had seen what God had done, who had experienced his faithfulness. And as you come to the end of the book of Joshua, this chapter in particular, Joshua knows that he's going to die. He knows that the last of that generation is going to go away. And he knows that when he dies, Israel will still now be responsible for finishing the task of conquering the promised land and of settling in it. And he knows that they will not have anyone from that previous generation to guide them. And so Joshua, upon knowing this will usher in a very significant season of change, comes and he speaks to them. And while change isn't necessarily a bad thing, how we process that change, how we think about that change, it will dictate what we look like on the other side. And Joshua knows this. And so look with me. I'm going to read an extended portion here of Joshua 24, what takes place. Starting in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Joshua says, I've called you together, but now listen to what God has to say to you as you're about to enter into this time of change. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave... Esau, the hill country of Seir, to possess. But Jacob and his children, they went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, He blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword, by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards. 
and the olive orchards that you did not plant. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. We see here in this interaction something very, very powerful. In the face of the change that Israel was about to experience, the transition of leadership and a task still to be done, in light of this new season that they're going to enter into, God comes and he speaks through Joshua. In verses 2 through 13, God speaks to Israel. And what does he do, church? He recounts for Israel well over 600 years of their history, all that they experienced, all that they went through for the last 600 years. But why? Why in the face of their changing situation does he give them a history lesson? Why recount their history the way that he does? If you're paying attention, if you're listening closely, it's because their history lesson spoken to them by God teaches a very important lesson, one that they need to carry with them into this new season, one that will ultimately challenge them and, I believe today, challenge us today in some very powerful ways. What is the lesson that God has to teach them? Well, again, if you were listening, notice how at every twist and every turn in the history of Israel, first, God was there. Did you hear it? Over and over again, God was there. And he wasn't just there as an observer watching. We get from the text that he was active and engaged. 17 times in 11 verses, God says to Israel, I did this for you. Then I did this for you. I gave you this. I gave you that. I did. I did. I did. I did. 17 times. God speaks. He makes it abundantly clear as he rehearses their history, as he looks at their, at their past with them, that not only was he present, but he was involved. And not only was he involved, he was acting on their behalf for their good. Israel's about to lose Joshua as their leader. They're about to go through a season of, of radical change, but God comes to them. And what does he do? He says, let me remind you of who I am and what I have done. He unfolds for them that when they experienced change in their past, he was there. He was there. He was with them through it all. And he wasn't only with them. He was at work for them. Church, everything that God does, including in the communication of his word, has a purpose. And he's recounting to Israel their history because he wants them to see something. What he wants them to see is this very simple but profound truth. Circumstances, people, and places can change. But God is coming in and saying, remember, I, your God, I remain the same. No matter what's happening, whether it's your circumstances, whether it's the people in your life, whether it's the places you are in, these things might change, but I remain the same. I'm always present. I'm always active. I'm always engaged in the lives of my people. This is what he's doing. And did you see that when he comes and he says, I've been there, I've been with you, I've been doing the same thing for you over and over again throughout your history. Do you see the kinds of things 
And this is where I'm going to fly through this. Did you see the kind of things that God was revealing to them about himself? The kind of God that he is. Not just that he's remained the same, but the kind of God who has remained the same. We see from the very beginning, he points out how gracious he is. That God is, is gracious. He talks about selecting Abraham as their forefather. And he made, like he, every word he speaks, he speaks intentionally. And he says, remember your forefather Abraham, the one who you look to? He says, you, you remember that his father and Abraham were idol worshipers before I chose them. Do you know what's being communicated there? These men who worship not the true God, but false gods, God came and he chose them. And he said, through you, I'm going to make a great nation. He's showing that he takes an idol worshiper and he makes him a true follower of God. If that's not grace, I don't know what is. Abraham did not deserve for God to call him and to make him his own. And yet God showed his grace and he called him. And then he promised Abraham that he would have descendants. And did Abraham get that descendant right away? Do you remember the story? No, he didn't get it right away. He had to wait. But God was faithful. God was faithful to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you a son. And he gave him a son. And then as we look in verse 5, we see that God is just, even though they went down into Egypt and even though they were oppressed as slaves, did God let the evildoers go unpunished? Did Egypt get off scot-free for what they had done to God's people? No, he says, don't you remember the Red Sea? Yeah, the entire army of Egypt was chasing you, and then the waters collapsed and wiped them all out. God's like, I am a just God. You see my justice. I rescued you. I put darkness between you and the Egyptians. I'm a God who rescues. I'm a God who's just. I'm a God who protects. He said, before you even got into the promised land, you had the Amorites who fought against you on the other side of the Jordan River. When you were exposed, you'd been in the wilderness. You hadn't formed yourself as a nation or with an army. And yet, what did I do? I gave you victory. I protected you from the Amorites before you even came into the land. And then he records for them how when they came into the land, he demonstrated his power. Our God is, is all-powerful. He, he conquered the people without even Israel having to raise a sword. Think about what happened in Jericho. Did you see how he mentioned the story of Jericho? You know the, the story of Jericho, right? They marched around the city and then they blew their trumpets and the walls came down and they captured the city. Not one man or woman had to die. He's showing his power. And then he shows in verse 13 how he ultimately sustains them. Look at this verse. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them, and you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I sustain you. I've done all this for you. Church, God recounts Israel's history to them. He reminds them of who he is and what he has done. He shows that he's always been at work around them. I'm the one who saves you. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one who protects you. The whole purpose, I believe, of God recounting to Israel right before Joshua is about to leave them as their leader, is to show them that circumstances, people, and places may change, but our God remains the same, and he is awesome. He's saying, when you look at your history, you see me for who I am, and I am awesome. Is that word overused today? It is. But let's remind ourselves of what it means for something to be awesome. 
It is something that elicits awe. Something that you look at and say, there's nothing quite like that. There's nothing quite like that. And when God recounts to the people who he is and what he's done, he's like, I want to elicit awe from you. I want you to know that I am the same God always and forever, and I am awesome in all my ways. I'm unlike anything else. But here's what is so awesome for us today. Something that should elicit awe from you is that you can look at that and you say, that's great. God did all of those things for Israel. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful what he did for them? How powerful he is, how he protects, how he conquers, how he does it. You know, it's great to know what God can do for a people like Israel. But I want us to believe and to know as a church, because what I'm about to show you, that our history today in 2022 as the people of God far exceeds what even Israel was able to experience. Because yes, they saw him you know, take care of the Egyptians at the Red Sea, and he was faithful to his promises with Abraham. But I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says is our history. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, listen to him recount what God has done for us. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were slaves to a horrible master among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. That means those who were under wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? That's your history that you just read there. If you don't know this about yourself, then you're missing to see how awesome God is. What he has done for us is far greater than even what Israel experienced because as the text goes on, we have been raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us us. You have been adopted and brought into God's family. You, have a, you don't have a promised land that you're looking forward to, a physical place. You have the glories and the joys of heaven and the presence of God that will be yours for eternity. Our God does not change. He has shown us grace. He protects. He sustains. He has done in and through Jesus Christ for us great and marvelous deeds. And so even as we think about our season of change, I want you to, you to see that our history is even greater in and through Jesus Christ than what was recounted to Israel. And this is where I wrote down this week, our view of God cannot be high enough. Our view of God cannot be high enough to think about how glorious and wonderful he is and what he has done we proclaim, as Joshua proclaimed, that circumstances, places, people might change, but our God remains the same for us, and he is awesome. The author of Hebrews said, just in case you forget it, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and guess what? Forever. Forever. 
This is who our God is. It's not just the God of, of Israel. Lots of things around us can change, but our God does not. And because of who our God is and because of what he has done, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is awesome, Joshua then speaks. He says, here's what God has to say to you, but now let me say what I have to say to you. It must lead to something. If you and I embrace this truth, if we see God for who he is and what he has done, look at verse 14. It starts with two words. Now, therefore... When you know your history, when you know who God is, when you know what he's done for you, it starts with these words, now, therefore. He's connecting with these two words, what he has said with what he's about to say, and there's going to be a cause and effect. When you hear the words, now, therefore, what Joshua's going to say, in light of what you've just heard, there's got to be a response. There's a causality to this truth. And what is it? He says it in verses 14 and 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. There is church. Only one right response to an awesome God. There is only one right response to an awesome God. Joshua tells us what it is, worship. The only right response to this information that you and I have received here this morning and that they received all those years ago, Joshua said, is a call to worship. Now, if you notice, Joshua doesn't exactly use those words, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't use the word worship, but he uses two words to describe it. Two phrases that are, the, that are different sides of the same coin of worship. He comes and he says that they are called to fear the Lord and serve him. We're going to talk about those two phrases because they encompass a life of worship. The correct response to knowing who God has been in the past and who he will be in the future for you and me is to fear him and to serve him. Now let's talk about what it means to fear the Lord because that, a lot of people don't get what that means, right? Does that mean I'm supposed to be afraid of God? That the response to God is to, to, to be afraid of him because when you're afraid of something, do you draw close to it or do you run from it? Come on now. If, you're afraid of, if you have half a brain and you're afraid of something, do you draw close to it or do you run from it, right? Well, some of you get paralyzed, but you should run from it, right? You're like, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to engage it. But when we talk about the fear of the Lord here, here's what we're talking about. Fearing the Lord, it refers to a heart of worship. And when we talk about serving the Lord, we're talking about an act of worship. I'm so grateful that Joshua does actually use this phrase as we find in the Old Testament, that you and I are called to fear the Lord. I'm going to do something here that I hope will, will help you get your minds around what it means to really fear the Lord and why that's actually one of the best ways that we can describe how we are to have a heart towards God. You see, to fear the Lord, to put it simply, is this. To know and to relate to God as he has revealed himself. To fear the Lord is to know and relate to God as he has revealed himself. Not as you and I think we should have a relationship with God. Not as though we think who God is, but as he truly has revealed himself to be. You see, there is something in our world that I think helps to capture the idea of what it means to really fear the Lord, to understand what that means. You see, in our world we have this thing called fire, right? Right? This is one of my little 
Yeah, that's hot. I don't know if you can see the, see the little flame that's up there. But we all know about fire, right? Think about fire for a moment. Think about its attributes. When you know fire for what it is and what it can do, think about how you engage it. You see, some of us at certain times, we can say that we absolutely love fire and that fire is actually a really good thing. If you have ever been out in the cold camping and you get that fire started, what does the fire do? It draws you to itself. I love a good campfire. It gives warmth. It gives heat. And so fire, in one sense, it's this thing that you say, I actually love it. It's so good. It's got these properties that, that keep me warm. If you have a torch in a dark place, if somebody lights a match or strikes a fire, it, all of a sudden it brings light. It illuminates and so fire isn't something in those moments that repel us, something that we want to stay away from. We say, no, no, fire, it's, it's this good thing because, because it gives light, it gives warmth. It makes known to us the way that we should, should go. You see, there's moments when fire is a really good thing. But then we also know that fire is also what? It's dangerous. At least it can be. Engaged in the wrong way, not respected not recognize what its properties can do. It can become a very dangerous and even deadly thing. It can burn. It consumes. It can destroy. And so we have this also at the same time we can say, oh man, I love a good fire. And in another breath we can also say, I'm scared of it because of what it can do. It's having a full understanding of fire that, that, that I think helps us think about what it means to really fear the Lord. Is our God loving? Thank you. Just check in there. <laughs> is he gracious? Yes. Is he forgiving? Yes. Is he merciful? Yes. Is he compassionate? Yes. Is he just? Yes. Does he repay the evildoer for their wickedness? Yes. Does he not let sin go unpunished? He deals with sin. The full aspect of God is to see him in all of who he is and to say, yes, Joshua said it right. When you know him for who he is, for what he has done, when you can recount his history, you say, fear the Lord. When you see him as truly marvelous, part of what fearing the Lord is, is, is this worship of him because you don't just take one tiny little aspect of him and cut it off from the rest, but you embrace him in the fullness of who he is. And if he's truly who he is, then you must serve him. I love how C.S. Lewis, in a very famous illustration in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this interaction. For those of you that know the Chronicles of Narnia series, there's a character named Aslan. And Aslan, he is this lion who exists in Narnia. And C.S. Lewis wrote, and he said, I wrote Aslan in Narnia to be the Christ type. So that when you think about Aslan in Narnia, he correlates to Jesus in our own world. And here's, here's this one little story, this one part of the story. It, it goes like this. Susan, the one girl, says, oh, they're talking about Aslan and, and, and getting to encounter him and, and that the fact that he's actually a lion. And she says, oh, I thought he was a man. And then he asks this great question. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Um, is that, a, is that a fair assumption? <laughs> Meeting, if you do not have fear in the presence of a lion, we can get you checked out. And then listen to what it says. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And then Lucy says, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. 
Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You, you see, he gets it. He's like, you can't just say he, he can be coddled and he can be loved. Like, there's more to Aslan than, than just, just one aspect of his character. In the same way, our God says, I am more than just this one thing. I am all-encompassing. But I am good. And then here's the response that we should all have. Peter says, I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to that point. Peter says, I, I want to see him for who he is, for the fullness. Church, we know who our God is. We know what he's capable of. We know what he has done. And we know, as we sang earlier, that he is our God. And so the only response that Joshua comes to say is to fear the Lord and to serve him. And it makes complete sense that he would do this because that was the purpose for which we were all created to begin with. Every single man and woman in this room has been made in the image of God. We were created from the beginning to bear his image, to live lives of worship for him. Not lives focused upon ourselves, but lives that make much of him. A life fully devoted to him. And which is why later on in the book of Romans, in the New Testament, Paul takes 11 chapters to tell the believers, the church in Rome, about the work of God in and through Jesus Christ. And then he comes to chapter 12 in verse 1 after recounting who God is and what he's done for them. And he says these verses that I think you know full well. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Just as Joshua said, now, therefore, in light of who God is, Paul says the same thing. In light of who God is, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Whether you are an Israelite or whether you are today a follower of Jesus Christ, when we encounter our God for who he is and what he's done, no matter if circumstances, people, and places may change because our God remains the same, our lives are to be about him and making much of, of him. It's why we as a church have a very simple mission statement. Here's our purpose as a church. We exist to glorify God by being and making disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in and through Jesus Christ that we've been saved, redeemed, made the people of God. And so we hear Joshua and we hear Paul and we say, our mission hasn't changed. We exist to glorify him by being and making disciples. It's what we are to be about no matter where we worship. No matter what changes happen in your life, whether you live here or you live there, this is our mission. And to live it out, look at what he says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. He says there's going to be three things that you're going to need to do on a daily basis. First, he says this, verse 14. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, well, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my household, we will what? Serve the Lord. That's the call that he comes to. Serve the Lord and fear him. That's the only thing that the people of God can do in response to the grace that he has come to show us. But as we look to live that out, notice how Joshua says, I want you to consider three things that you need to be aware of. 
if we're going to live this out, then the first thing Joshua says is you need to examine your life for idols. If you really believe that Jesus Christ has saved you and redeemed you and that you are his own, that we are his people, who, as Peter says, are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, then Joshua comes here and he says, you need to examine yourself. Before he says, put away idols from your lives, you have to ask the question, what's an idol? And am I serving, an, am I really serving and fearing the Lord or is my life being lived for something else? Even today as followers of Jesus Christ, the temptation exists to be drifting away, to be going after things instead of living to make much of our God, to make much of other things. In fact, that's really what an idol is. I always define an idol very simply as this. Anything that we live for other than God, anything that we look to for our ultimate joy and satisfaction. We're going through a season of change as a church. It's a great time for you to stop and to say, where am I at with the Lord right now? Is my life about making much of him in this season of change as Joshua stopped Israel before they went in to finish their task, he was calling them, examine your life. Are there any idols in, their, in your life? Are there things that you are looking to or looking for to do for you what only God has already done for you? Is there something that you're making much of other than the Lord? It's not something that you do just once and say, nope, you know what, I eradicated all my idols. You know, that's it, I've examined that. No, no, we must daily examine ourselves. We must look to see if we're walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. And once we've examined our lives, if we see an idol, it leads to the second thing, which is we need to eradicate the idols. We must eradicate the idols. Uh, Paul would say this in Colossians chapter 3 to the church there. Listen to this. He says, put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He literally is writing to Christians and he's saying, there are things, even as a follower of Jesus Christ say, that you need to be aware of, that you need to put to death. He Joshua was calling Israel to get rid of physical idols that were in their midst. Paul says you can have idols in your heart. When you see them, you got to get rid of them. Change and seasons of change are times where we can examine ourselves before the Lord and say, are we living for him or are we living for other things? I know guys and I know women who've taken this so seriously, who have literally, in a very physical way, I know of guys who've literally given away their golf clubs who've said, listen, I look for this thing to bring me joy and peace, and it distracts me. And, and you know what? I could, I could keep my golf clubs, and, and I could try and deal with it, but I just got to get rid of my golf clubs completely. I know guys who have sold dune buggies, who've sold trailers and campers because they said, I made too much of going out to the desert and participating in those activities. I've known people who have come to me and said, listen, I had to cut those friends out of my life. I've been ghosting them. I'm not returning their phone calls because I know that they lead me away. I've looked to those friends to be for me what only God can be for me. Like sometimes it's that extreme. Like to eradicate. He says, put away the idols. Like, sometimes we need to go to that extent. Sometimes it's being just diligent day by day to look at those things in our life, in our spirit, the way we're thinking about other people. Sometimes it's the thoughts. The Bible says take every thought captive. So that can be exhausting sometimes, but sometimes those thoughts, when we, when we fixate on them, they're not thoughts that come from the Lord, and we must put them to death. And then he gives us the final thing. 
which is to engage in worship daily. Did you see it? Did you see it in the text? We talk about eradicating idols, but it's not just simply leaving our idols and that's it. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will what? Serve. Choose this day. And tomorrow you're going to have to choose it again. Will I look to him? Will I look to his word? Will I celebrate Christ for who he is and what he has, has done? This is Joshua saying, when you recount your history, when you think about it in this time of change, examine your heart for idols, eradicate any that you see, and then daily look to worship him. Why? Because circumstances, people and places can change, but our God remains the same and he is awesome. What are you doing? What am I doing on a daily basis to cultivate in my heart a knowledge of how awesome my God is? It's why we gather for worship. The preaching might be so-so. The, the worship could be great. But the truth is we gather here to hear some truth that our hearts need to be reminded of who our God is so that we can do, as Joshua said here, daily choose to worship the Lord. And when you put this all together, church, when, when you begin to see these truths, when you put them all together, it leads us to where we find ourselves today. That whether you're the Israelites getting ready to conquer the promised land or your Valley Center Community Church getting ready to move into a permanent new building of worship, here's the truth. Our place of worship may change, but our mission remains the same because of who our God is. What we're going to talk about over the next three weeks as we enter into the new worship center is we're going to take three intentional weeks focusing on the God that we glorify. Because what do our hearts need today and every single day is a bigger picture and a greater knowledge of the God that we serve. Because when we see him for who he is, then we embrace all that more our mission. That we exist to what? Glorify him. To live for him. My prayer, the prayer of each and every elder and pastor at Valley Center Community Church is that no matter what season we're in, no matter who's here or who's not here, no matter if we're under a tent or in a building, that we as a church have such a wholesale knowledge and have so wholly embraced who our God is that we never lose sight that our lives are lived to make much of him. And so whether we eat or drink, whether we worship in a tent or in a building, whether we live in Valley Center or we move to Texas, whatever you do, <laughs> you do all to what? The glory of God because our God remains the same so the mission does not change. May he forever be praised and worshiped in this place. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come and gather once again, Lord, all we're doing is what the people of God have done historically through the ages. We see it here when Joshua called the people of God to gather before you. How awesome is that? You were the God who saw them and spoke to them all those years ago. And you're the God who sees us and speaks to us today through your word. So that as we go into the world, no matter what happens in our life, no matter what changes around us, the, the truth is you remain the same and you are awesome. And so we embrace every single day the mission that you have given to us. And so help us as your people to take this moment and this season and this time in our life, Lord, to embrace this change as an opportunity to once again embrace you for who you are, 
for what you have done. And if there's anyone here today whose story is not the story of Ephesians chapter 2, who have not been yet delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into your marvelous light, that they would know that they'll never get there on their own. Just as Israel could never conquer the promised land on its own, but that through your work, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, they can make the greatest history be their history as they can know today the forgiveness of their sins as we know the forgiveness of ours through Christ our Lord. And we pray and we ask this in his name and all God's people said, amen and amen.